Hello and welcome, Translating the World, a podcast from the University of Texas at Dallas. Rainer Schelte is the founder and director of the Center for Translation Studies and the editor of Translation Review. In 1978, he co-founded the American Literary Translators Association, also known as ALTA. I'm Jayan Kim, and I am the producer and editor of this podcast. I'm so delighted to introduce our special guest for today's episode, Dr. Louis Menon. Uh, Dr. Menon is a professor of English and Arts and Sciences at Harvard University. There are many of his publications that have entered the world of academia and the general reading. I will just mention one or two of them, The, the Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War, which was one of the New York Times bestsellers, 100 bestsellers in 2021. And then the other book that I have also gone through, The Metaphysical Club, for which he received the Pulitzer Prize in history for a distinguished background. From my point of view, the most interesting part in 2021, in December, was an article that he had published in The New Yorker, which I read regularly. And the title of this is What's So Great About Great Books and Courses. That article attracted my attention and actually initiated me to pursue to have Dr. Menon to give a speech to the School of Arts and Humanities during the semester. So thank you again for this very successful presentation you gave for the A&H Arts and Humanities program at the University of Texas at Dallas. The real issue that attracted me to the article in The New Yorker and something that I'm extremely interested in is the future of the arts and humanities, and especially the studies of the humanities. I am of a similar opinion as Dr. Menon, that there are some major problems with the study of the humanities, and they have to be addressed. And I am pleased to say that he is one of the few people in the academy, in the academic studies, who is very much concerned and addresses this particular topic. So I hope that we will be able, perhaps, to not only assess where we are, but also to go ahead and give some ideas about the direction for the future. Because of my own background, I continuously use the word vordenken, vordenken, a word for which there is no English immediate translation, because it means to think toward the future. So this has become one of my favorite words these days, and I hope that we might be able to do a little vordenken for the few years to come. Um, and I would like to center our discussion about and around the idea of the humanities at present what is going wrong in the academy with the study of the humanities, and would be a few people like Dr. Menon to chart ideas that could be of importance to
to redirect the study of the humanities in the future. In your previous speech, Dr. Manon, you very clearly indicated the decline of the enrollment in undergraduate studies that you had very clearly outlined, and I have all the figures actually right in front of me. But what I would like to hear you say from your point of view that goes back to two or three uh, I, lines or ideas you had projected in one of your articles that was earlier on that is to focus on the over-specialization, which I have been struggling with for quite some time. What does it do to the students? And then the other thing that I frequently come back to is the, <clears throat> is the Pinker article that uh, scholarly writing stinks. And uh, I have always thought that that article, when it was first published in the in the uh, in the what was it higher what is that yeah and so I always thought about how, why are we not addressing some of these issues and I am coming also from the performance point of view and I believe that a lot of our students are very much interested in seeing themselves performing the ideas and not just describing the object. And I think this is, from my point of view, a major change that will have to be initiated. When you wrote that article in The New Yorker, what was in the background of your thinking at that point? What do you think you could achieve or wanted to achieve with this article and the main ideas in there? Uh, well, thank you for having me on. Um, the article was just a book review, really, um, and I was reviewing two books by literature professors, one at Brown and one at Columbia, and they took a certain view of how the humanities should be taught that I thought was um, not going to be effective in generating student interest. Because the reason we know there's a problem is because students are not taking our courses. Um, this is a national phenomenon, pretty much. Um, and, and it's particularly true at large research universities like Harvard, Columbia, and Brown. They just have enormous attrition in enrollment and in majors in all the humanities, but for example, particularly in literature. Um, the one department that seems a little isolated from that trend is philosophy for reasons we can probably imagine. But in literature and the arts, is just a decline of students taking those courses. So something's wrong, and I don't think anybody knows exactly why. So I'm not good at predicting the future. I mean, I, I certainly take the spirit of your, of your idea that we should think about the future, and I think we have to think about something to respond to what's going on. But it's very hard to predict what will work for students. Um, so when I wrote that article, the two uh, authors of those books, I said they're both uh, teach the humanities, um, took a kind of classic great books approach, which is that these books are appealing to undergraduates because they contain wisdom. And that our job as teachers is, is to embody that wisdom 
and then to convey that to our students and that that's what makes the humanities, the role that humanities should play in the modern university. In their view, everything else, the sciences, are just technological uh, fields which people gather information. They don't really have anything to do with what it means to be a human being, but that's what we teach when we teach these classic texts. I don't think students today buy that, partly because they like science. They think science is changing the world, um, and they want to become part of that in one way or another. So they're turned off a little bit by the anti-science rhetoric that's just kind of baked into literature departments, in my experience. Um, so that's not helping very much. Secondly, I don't think we're that wise. I mean, I've taught great books for my whole life, you know, classic books. I don't think I'm any wiser than I was when I was 17 years old. Certainly, what not better human being. So the idea that by reading these books we're, you know, going to turn people into better people, I think is also, it's just a, it's a fantasy that we have about what we're doing. So I think that I feel that the, there's a problem with the university, which we'll talk about, which is specialization. But that that a problem aside. We're supposed to produce knowledge. That's what, why we're professors. And if we think about our work with literature as producing knowledge about literature and trying to convey that knowledge to students and to the general public as well as to our colleagues, that seems to be where our focus should be. And I don't think we should imagine ourselves as being able to play this kind of Harry Potter role in, in students' lives. So that's part of the problem. Um, and that's what I was responding to in that piece. But as I say, it was a response to two books that raised these issues. I see this as a beginning discussion towards the future. I don't think that either you or myself will change the immediate future. I do, however, give some ideas to the point of view that I feel that students would like to be more involved in this. And the reason I'm saying this, I'm teaching often on a poetry workshop. And the majority of the students in the poetry workshop are the scientists. So uh, generally, if you have uh, 15 students, you can think in the poetry workshop, you will have about seven, eight students who come from the sciences. And they are, in many cases, <coughs> the real forward-looking and creative students in the workshops because they want to get away from the numbers and want to see how their own creative abilities can put words together. And they're very, they're very keen on thinking out the associations of words that to a certain extent might be reminding them of putting numbers together and in, are enjoying the possibility of expressing themselves rather than repeating the numbers that they are involved in almost every day. So that's one <coughs> idea and one aspect of uh, what I consider to be quite interesting to see that the scientists are opening the doors to become involved in the creative arts and also in the study of literature and the arts in general. Yeah, that's, uh, I totally have the same experience. The most enthusiastic students in my courses do tend to be science students, I think for reasons that you mentioned. And remember that creativity is very important in science and in the tech world. They value that. Um, so 
we find students will take creative writing courses, we have to turn them away, which they won't take as literature courses. So you're right that one way to tap into what interests students today is to um, put a greater emphasis on arts practice, including creative writing, art making, filmmaking, and so on, because they, they all value that and they all think that's important. Um, it, the trouble we're having, as I said, is this teaching literature in a historical way. They're not interested so much in that anymore, and that's, that's what the big change, I think, is. And I have another <clears throat> idea or approach to that, and since I have been working from the area of translation, I have rethought some of the approaches. And one it is that I thought we continuously in literature, especially in literature courses, the first question that is always being asked, what does it mean? <laughs> and I remember that from my own studies, that we were supposed to repeat the final statement of meaning that the instructor gave us and then we have to repeat it in the final examination. And I am of the opinion that we might want to change that approach from saying not what does it mean because there is no such thing as the only meaning of a text and there's also no such thing as the only translation of a text. I remember that at one point, uh, with a colleague of mine, we looked at 20 to 25 translations of the Inferno by Dante. So you have to ask yourself, why are all of these translations there? And I think each time, from my point of view, if the student can recreate his or her interpretive perspective of the text that involves the student's walking through the text and so my idea is not what does the text mean but how does the text come to mean Bec ah thank you how ca does the text come to mean is once again for the student to have the ability to reconstruct the text from his or her point of view that doesn't necessarily mean that ultimately that's the most valuable interpretation of the text yeah, I think I think students get that. Um, I think they understand about literary meaning, um, and yeah, we certainly don't want to be uh, telling, them what, telling them there's only one meaning. So I don't. Yeah, I don't think that's. I don't think that that's not a problem from the student point of view. I think the problem is just they don't understand. They don't get why we're interested in literary history. That's to me that's the big change because. These disciplines are organized historically. That's how everybody's trained. Students don't care about history. They don't care about contemporary life. Um, that's why they're interested in making art and, and making poetry and writing novels and so on. Um, and they do have a very rich cultural lives, most of them. They listen to music. They, you know, they watch all kinds of movies, um, documentaries. They read novels. They are interested in poetry. I mean, it's not like they're not culturally... Um, you know, engaged human beings. They just don't somehow see the relevance of what we teach them to, to, the, to, the, to their contemporary interests. That, to me, that's the heart of it. So uh, my English department has been trying to redesign its requirements for a while, um, partly in response to this 
change in student interest in our field. And one of the things that we persuaded the department to do, which was which was a little reluctant to do it, was to teach a course called Literature Today, which is taught by two people, one of whom is a creative writer or a writer and photographer, Teju Cole, and um, in which they only read texts written after 2000. And it's an extremely popular, it's the only popular course we have, basically. It, it draws double the number of the next most popular course in the department because students, they could see the reason why they'd want to talk about books that are written now, books in their, of their generation. So that's one way to show them that there's a connection between what we, what we can talk to them about and teach them about when they're reading literature and the stuff that is in their dorm rooms or that their parents are reading. Um, so that's one thing that can, that can work. But I completely agree that the arts practice part of it is the section of the humanities that's still working at the undergraduate level to extract students and we should try to make sure that we make all our courses relevant to that interest. I come at it from the point of view of performance can change the approach that for each student all of a sudden the text becomes a challenge to perform. And the one aspect that I add to this is now the availability of the digital. I see this as a major improvement for the study of literature, the visual and the musical arts. And one of the aspects of that that I always go back to is Bernstein's The Unanswered Question, the series of lectures that he gave at Harvard some time ago. And, and so what, what I think Bernstein introduced to a certain extent to make the works accessible to the general public. I mean, what the audience that he had, they were general public, whether they were trained in music or anything else, I have no idea. But when you watch these, uh, these reproductions or recordings of this, you see how he was able to come to all of these works, whether they were musical or visual or verbal, was to see them from the angle of performance. And my idea now is instead of what, we, what I was trained is to describe the text and in many cases do the summary. I did a lot of summary when I went through this, uh, the, the educational process. And I think the summary is detrimental. I think what we should think about now is how to not describe the object, but how to go interact with the object. And that's where I come from the point of view of translation, that whenever you have a word in another language, you have to establish a dialogue with it and then translate it into my own language. And I think whenever we read, we translate the text in our perception. Yeah. That's, where, that's where I see it. And the, the digital, for example, I find is that I can take a short story and uh, see at the first paragraph, look at the first paragraph and see that there are two words, I use the Ilse Eichinger short story about man, and I see two words, and then within seconds I can see how these two essential words in the first paragraph were repeated throughout the story 20 times. And each time it's a, a repetition, but a slightly varied repetition 
and I get the interest of the students to pursue it, and then if you have done this on two levels, then you can read the story from a different point of view. Yeah. So that's part of how I see it. I'm trying to figure out some techniques. Yeah. Uh, we, we have to have some techniques that in one form or another respond, the students respond to. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, and and I think this is what you know the the three things you said: the over-specialization, and then your last point was the holistic. Yeah. From your point of view, how how does that come about? Yeah. Well, the over-specialization is part of how the modern university organized itself about a hundred years ago, and by and large, in the arts humanities, we're still kind of stuck with those different disciplinary frameworks, uh, English, German, Romance languages, comparative literature, philosophy, linguistics, music, art history, and um, we don't stray outside those boundaries as professors. We generally stick to our silo, as we call them, our discipline, and the work that we produce is intended to be read by people in the same discipline, the same silo. I even think in silos, let's say English literature is a silo or department, there are these bubbles inside the silo which contain, you know, the work of subspecialists. So people working in, you know, early modern drama occupy a bubble and they talk to people working in early modern drama. It's a fairly small number of people. And those are the people whose opinion they need to validate their work because that's how the reward structure operates. So there's no incentive for people in early modern drama to write a book that I would want to read. They'd be happy if I wanted to read it, but my opinion of that book has no professional consequences to them. So because of the way that system is set up, just the principle of the division of labor, which is if you allow people to specialize, you can get a lot deeper into particular subjects. Um, there's no very little opportunity, let's put it this way, not no, little opportunity for people to expand their frame of reference. So they end up writing for a small audience. And that small audience doesn't just exclude their own colleagues in the rest of the department. It also excludes colleagues in other departments who might be interested in what literature professors have to say. And it completely excludes the general public whose, whose interests we are, in fact, being paid to serve by producing knowledge for the general public. So I just think the whole system has got itself going backwards. Um, but it's very hard to change for that very reason because we're all invested in a system that gives out rewards the way it does. That's how we became professors where we teach. That's how we got tenure. So it's hard for us to say, oh, that stuff shouldn't matter because it's, you know, it's, it validates us. Um, but, it, but I think it's become a problem. <coughs> Potentially it's a problem everywhere in universities. It doesn't matter what the fields are, but <coughs> it's certainly a problem in humanities, I think, which is just over-balkanized. Or just too many departments. They don't talk to each other. Um, so I think that, to me, that's a big, it's always been a big issue. <clears throat> Knowledge as a whole, it all hangs together somehow, but we just, we're not trained to think about it that way. Do you think there is a way that the academy could begin to have, uh, I talk a great deal about faculty development. In many cases, obviously, what you have just outlined, faculty who are very, very specialized do not want to go there. 
they, they, they want to do the same thing, and in some cases I ask myself, who reads these books? Nobody reads, well, another hundred yeah. people read them, yeah. Yeah, so none of the students read these books. Students definitely don't read them, yeah. Yeah, and so one has to ask what, which books are actually appealing to the books, or what lectures are appealing to the books, and that's that's what I think we have to start. And from my point of view, and I hope that we will be able to establish on a larger scale, is to see that the study of the humanities moves away from continuously describing the work and repeating what's in the work, but rather to see what kind of avenues can we establish in practical terms for the student to recreate the book from his or her point of view. That's where I think right. I, want, I want to work on. Okay, yeah, that sounds fine. I mean, I would like to see, I would like to see more interdisciplinarity with the social sciences because I think we should be, think of ourselves that way, but that's not gonna go anywhere. I mean, you know, the system works well, this way. I, I go to graduate school, I pick a field to concentrate on, most of early modern dramas, by example, in our conversation. And it took my field of modern poetry. Uh, and then I am trained by one or two people who also specialist in that area and write a dissertation. And then I get hired on the strength of that dissertation and the recommendations of the two or three people I work with who are specialists. And then uh, I get a job, and I get a job. I have to turn the dissertation into a book. I turn it into a book. I send it to a university press. It sends it out to readers. Who are those readers? They're specialists in early modern drama. And they decide, tell the press whether this book is or is not a contribution to knowledge in their field. And if they say it is, university press publishes it. It gets reviewed by who? Specialists in early modern drama who then say, this is great, it's not so good, whatever, argue with it, become part of the conversation. And then they are put up for tenure. When they're put up for tenure, the department writes out to other people asking them, referees, asking them their opinion of the tenureability of this candidate. Who do they ask? Other specialists in early modern drama. So there's no incentive to write something that's going to appeal to somebody who's not early modern drama because it will have zero effect on your career pretty much. So that's a problem. And by the time you've reached the point where you're coming up for tenure, you've been in the discipline for 15 years. You're not going to change. You would know how to change. You can't retrain yourself. So I don't see this. I don't see the answer, really. I mean, you could reduce the time of graduate education, which I think is absurdly long. Median time is nine years in the humanities. Have, to, have people take longer than nine years to get a PhD, which is to teach poetry? Are you kidding me? Um, so you could reduce that time. You could eliminate the dissertation, which is an enormous investment that takes years and years to have pay off by turning it into a book, getting reviewed, blah, blah, blah. You could change the criteria for tenuring people so that teaching and service and outreach and interdisciplinarity and these other things that don't normally count for much count for a lot more. But nobody would agree with that. Nobody would do it. It would just be resisted. So we're just stuck in this. We're stuck in a... In a in a bricks and mortar institution in a digital age. The rest of the world's speeding by. <laughs> We're still stuck, you know, in our silos. So I'm sorry to be so negative about it, but I No, I, I totally like agree with this. Nothing's ha nothing happens. Nothing changes. 
it's pretty ridiculous. So then the question is, what can you and I do? So you and I have a slightly different take on how to approach the subject matter, how to appeal to students, how to get them engaged with it. My, my own approach involves intellectually reaching out to these so-called other fields, which actually are part of what we're studying. Literature is part of social history, uh, part of economic history and political history. It should be thought of that way. People should learn about those things. Uh, and to make it more um, integrated as a field and less specialized. Just to teach literature itself without any other subject matter is absurd. It's just, that's crazy. But that's, we've been doing that for a hundred years. We just teach poems. We don't, we don't even have students read biographies or read history. We just teach poems. That's nuts. But anyway, so I think that's my view. Okay, the question is, does that, will that make any difference to undergraduates? I doubt it. I doubt it. Because I think the rap on us is that, particularly English departments, is that who cares about British literature? Who cares about the British? You know, they were imperialists. They, they were engaged in the slave trade. Their food is terrible. Nobody wants to go there. So, it, and that's what we teach. We teach mostly. We teach literature written in the British Isles between 800 and you know, 1800. That's most of the English department teaches. Students don't care about that anymore. They're, they come from different parts of the world. You know, they just don't see why they should care about literature written in that country, but that's the tradition. So that's a little easier to change, but to get back to, I think, your original point, and got me started on this rant, is that um, we would have to train people and reward people for doing that kind of teaching and for that kind of scholarship in order to have it work. Because otherwise, people will just regard it as pro bono. They won't think that they, they won't think there's any particular professional reason why they should be doing things this way as opposed to the way they have traditionally done them. Um, is that going to happen? I don't know. So I, in my experience, um, so I started teaching in 1980, and uh, I've taught mostly in doctoral level institutions, um, and uh, I've had a lot of PhD students, and I would say that one thing that's happened, which I certainly know it's just because of the nature of my own writing, is that writing for non-academic publications is more valued than it was in 1980. 1980, nobody cared if you wrote a magazine article. But today, people do care a little bit. I think they think it's a good thing that they have people who are writing for the New Yorker, the New York Review of Books, or London Review of Books, or whatever. Um, so that's something that is a little more value than it used to. It doesn't replace the scholarly monograph uh, as a criterion for tenure, but it does, uh, it encourages people to, do, to pursue that kind of writing, which is a good thing, I think. Because when you write for those places, you can't write you know, um, in scholarly jargon. You have to write in language people can understand. Um, so that's one thing that's, uh, that's changed a lot. The second thing that's changed more recently, I think, is there's a little bit more emphasis on teaching. Uh, now, a lot of that is just talk, because I've seen tenure cases where the teaching was dreadful, and because the scholarship you know, got very good reviews, the person got tenure anyway, which I think is a mistake, but they're not going to be good colleagues, but you know, that's sort of how the system still works. But to the extent that teaching is a factor in evaluating people for hire or for promotion, uh, or for tenure, um, teaching counts a little bit more than it used to. So those are, those are sort of good indicators. They're small, you know, in the great scheme of things, but they do suggest there's a little bit of a change from 
the mindset of professors you know, back before 1980 or 1990. Um, so that's, you know, those are good things. Well, I am very much on the same uh, level or the same page. That's why I mentioned earlier also the, uh, the, the unanswered question by uh, Leonard Bernstein. Yeah. And I also see one of the major driving forces that's what George Steiner said, that all acts of communication are acts of translation. Yeah. And so I have used that also as a guiding point in my own teaching and my own addressing. And as you said, uh, I am also mostly uh, in, involved in the teaching of graduate students. I have done very little on the undergraduate level in the last four or five years. Oh. And I stopped teaching graduate students. I only teach undergraduate students. <laughs> I stopped teaching graduate students. I only teach undergraduate students. Oh, you stopped teaching yeah. graduate students. Well, no, I didn't fully stop, but I, I cut back on graduate students. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, I, still, I, I, still, I still have a lot of PhD students, dissertation students. So I'm, I'm in touch with them, but I sort of stopped teaching them. Well, I think you put your finger on one of the things that a lot of the dissertations, they border on academic jargon. Yeah, they're not. So I think there's a fallacy that if you're an English scholar of English literature, you're a good writer. It's just it's not the case. We're no better than people in other departments, other fields. So um, it's a little silly. Back in when I was starting out in graduate school, English graduate students taught writing as though we somehow had special access to know how to write well, but we, we don't write particularly well, most of us. So I think that is an issue. And that's something else that, again, so look at this way. There's a reward structure in every profession. There's things you need to do to advance in the profession, to go up the totem pole, to get make more money, have a better position, whatever it is your goals are. And everybody internalizes those uh, those requirements, and then they basically gear their efforts to making sure that they meet them so that they can get to the next stage. In order to change behavior, you have to change the requirements. You have to change the reward structure. There's just no other way to do it. You can't browbeat people into teaching more if you don't care about teaching. If you say, well, we care about teaching, then people will pay more attention to their teaching. If we care about how clearly you write, or how big an audience you reach, people will care about it too. But if you just encourage them to do it, it's not going to have any effect. So, but the, what's discouraging is that there's always a large number of people in, in every department I've been in who will resist any effort to change the way we go about training and evaluating colleagues. Amen. I fully agree with that. <laughs> there's no uh, <coughs> denying this that uh, the, the thinking backwards is uh, normal practice and there's very little, very little for Duncan. <laughs> yeah. And that, that disturbs me greatly because I run continuously into that wall. Yeah. Well, and people, in, in crisis, people want to retrench. They want to, they well, want that's to true. Stay, stay in the, in the trench. Um, you know, some of my colleagues want to do what they did when they were students, wherever they were, yeah. at whatever university. That's what they and, that's, yeah. and they create a lot of rules that actually uh, uh, limit any kind of innovation for the future. Yeah. And you have articulated very well in your speeches and also in your writing. And my idea is how can we as instructors <coughs> 
how can we begin to change this? And my idea is possibly that we begin to work in re in groups of graduate students and first of all find out what it is that they are interested and then see that we can maybe retrain some of us as instructors. I mean, that might be very ideal, but since I come from the pianistic point of view, then you, you learn how much you have to work in order to reorient the interpretation of a work. <clears throat> and I think in most cases we, don't, we are not willing to, to make that effort, or at least the current situation of people have been tenured and they are at the level of associate professors, it sometimes looks as if they're retiring. <clears throat> yeah. So what I what I was thinking, if if this is ideally speaking, that one to start this, I got a grant from the NEH when I first started the the uh, translation center, <clears throat> and that has made a difference, a small difference, but it has made a difference. And so the question is whether one should start there and get a group of people together who think like you do <clears throat> and see what could be done. Because you're as frustrated as I am. <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of past frustrated, actually. But you're yeah. past it. Yeah. <laughs> past it. But no, I think. But I think the thing about that is that you need funding, but you could you can create a center where like-minded people, maybe right. from other departments, can do their thing together, and that can attract student interest and. So on, but it's not a department. You know, it's just a budget line, really. And you're not the, traditionally what the university has done. This was this is how women's studies got started. Remember when women, when women uh, sort of entered English departments, which was in the 1970s. They've basically been excluded before that. Um, universities created women's studies centers so they could go do their thing in a center and didn't have to bother the departments. And that's true of African-American studies started out that way. A lot of fields start out that way because they, departments don't really want them, so they create a center. But the centers are very highly fungible entities. They don't have a lot of permanence and they don't tenure people, they don't hire people, they don't have lines. So it's, it's a temporary solution, I think. It's very hard to translate what goes on in a center back into the department. And that's what you're really what you need to do. You need to change the Well, that's what we're doing. I mean, we have we have the Center for Translation Studies, which has made a slight difference. And that could be, you know, and I agree that the center has the possibility of moving forward. Yeah. So there you have some mobility. It's n more nimble than a department and so on. It's just that institutionally, you know, it's, it's, it does, it's not well protected in the way departments are. But I'm all for it. And, and universities are ha happy to do it on the whole, if they can afford it. Mm -hmm. Well, I have had a discussion with the dean that we might expand the Center for Translation Studies to become involved in the overall restructuring of the humanities coming from the angle of translation. Yeah, well, good luck with that, because that would be huge if we could do that. Well, <clears throat> one has to be starting somewhere. Yeah. And I do know what involved in it, but you have to find first the right people who are willing to think in that direction. Yeah. And also that whatever they do is be recognized by, these, by the academic system, or otherwise 
people obviously won't do it. I mean, you clearly said that people come in, they do their articles, they do their uh, master's thesis, their dissertations, publish the book, etc., etc. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> but that stays on the same railroad track. It does, yes. <laughs> it, it doesn't, doesn't shift. No. So. Do you, from your point of view, do you think that changes can still happen, or are we so structured in that the university eventually will lose its value as an educational system? I think, I think the university is doing fine as a whole. It's just, it's just our, it's our wing of it that's having problems. Universities exist to provide a trained workforce, and they're doing that. People still want to go to college, and. Um, so I don't think the university is going anywhere, but I think that our role in it has become a little harder to explain and defend for, for pretty obvious reasons. I mean, to the extent that the interest is in STEM fields of undergraduate students, we don't speak to that. We have nothing to say to that. And even areas where we are somewhat knowledgeable and somewhat relevant, for example, areas like race and ethnicity and identity generally. Um, there's a lot of social science and science work that's going on that probably students prefer to reading a bunch of novels. So I think we're, you know, we have a relevance problem. Um, when I look back, I think it's funny that when I was in college, I thought English was just the most relevant discipline <laughs> where I got that idea, but they don't, they don't feel that way now. So, uh, but as you say, the, I think the important thing takeaway, I don't think we're going to become interdisciplinary soon, but I think the takeaway from what you've been saying, and I agree with, is that students do care about making things and creating things and writing things and so on, and that's part of what we study, and we should be more, we should make a bigger effort to connect the scholarly and critical side of our disciplines with the creative side, because that's where students live right now, uh, and we haven't lost that yet. Other than that, no, I don't have a great deal of optimism, except to say that when things get really bad, people have to change, you know, it's not good. we can't keep going. The place like Harvard, they'll always be an English department, they'll never take our lines away, we can afford it. They don't care if we have no students, they want to have a good English department. But in other places, they'll close it down, or they'll shrink it, um, and, and those places will struggle against that, and, and struggling against that, they may come up with some solutions the student interest problem. Well, since you used the word interdisciplinarity, uh, that now in some institution has become a little, uh, how should I say, negative. Um, the University of Texas at Dallas was founded on the idea of building an interdisciplinary program, but then over the years we have hired people who have come in with their fixed training and when you now pronounce the word interdisciplinary, they they think this is a very bad word. <laughs> yeah, because nobody's uh, trained to be interdisciplinary. It's that. Well, that's the point. It's all ad hoc. Yeah. It's like, oh, I decided I'm going to take something from sociology. You don't know anything about sociology. No. I have no training in it. So it's a mess. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and I think you're correct in assuming that some of the basic structure for our students has to be revisited. I look at somebody who writes a dissertation of 19th century British literature. Where is that going to lead yeah. to? Right. Yeah. 
Well, it used to be thought of as contributing to the body of knowledge that English studies represents, but as you say, everything's gotten very hyped up. So, yeah, I agree. But as I, but as I, we always say is that the whole system's set up to work that way. You can't just break it. Um, no, you can't break it, but I think we can make maybe a little effort here or there. Yeah. And that's why I was attracted to your thinking yeah. and this. Oh, I agree. I'm sorry to be so negative. But <laughs> no, no, it's very important that people who come from your institution <coughs> make these statements. Very, very important, the way I see it. <coughs> I was very lucky because I studied in many countries and I had some forward, very forward looking people in my own studies. But right now is the point where I see I run into one wall after the other because a lot of my colleagues want to do what they were trained to do. And that's what you have outlined. You do this so you get promoted to associate and to full professor, etc., etc. <clears throat> and now the, the, some effort has to be made to come from the ground. And on very simple terms, some of the colleges I see are more and more interested. There's a college, for example, requires that their undergraduate students have to get some training in the digital. Because the digital will be normal in 10 years, the same way the phone or the computer is right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah I, I think why those yeah. skills are important. Subjects are important. So, you, <clears throat> before we exit yeah. and uh, yeah. go into the future with a smile maybe on our <laughs> face that things can be changed, yeah. Uh, I do myself. I know you get a lot of opposition as you try to change. Yeah, yeah. When I first worked in the area of translation, you should look at some Margaret Sayers Peden, who was one of the best known translators from Latin America. When you see how she was treated when she was first in the academic world, that's horrible. Yeah. A lot of the people who were working in translation studies had to hire their publications because they were counterproductive for being promoted. Well, we're past that yeah. right now. Yeah. But th that's again, some of these things will have to be pushed. And in some institution, interdisciplinarity right now is not necessarily a favorite word for a lot of faculty members. I said, I'm glad you're pushing. Well, I'm glad you're saying it and you're, you're pointing your finger on what it. When I saw these three things, you know, over-specialization and holistic, and the holistic is yeah, what yeah. you're talking about. You don't have to yeah, use yeah. the word, but that's exactly no, what you're talking word. about. And that is, yeah, and that's clearly connected to this thinking of interdisciplinarity across the board, because uh, the sciences have changed, and I think that's right. They did change. Well, uh, thank, thank you very you. much for being thank here today. You. I greatly appreciate what you have written and the way you talk about it. It, it indicates that there are some other voices that we have to cherish and maybe make these voices more known thank in the you. future. I do want to do a special issue of the translation review dedicated oh, to that. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Okay. We will be in touch and uh, okay. thank you again for being here okay. today and also thank you again for having delivered the very interesting speech you gave to the School of Arts and Humanities. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. To learn more 
help at the Center for Transition Studies, please visit our website, transition.utdallas.edu. And please keep up with us on our social media accounts, which can be found on their website. We'll see you next time on Translating the World.